Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. I am Jeremiah O'Shan. I'm Mark Kastner. This is the Sounder at Heart podcast. Joined by my co-host, Mickey Turner. This is the other voice that you hear. Tim Foss. Of course, Ari Lillian Wall. This has been an extremely weird podcast. Getting dragged all day. So the bottom line is they, they don't have an answer to that. There's a reason they got signed to first team contracts. And if you're not going to give them respect for that, then have fun losing again next Very year. special guest, Brian Spencer, head coach of the Seattle Sounders. You know who he is. Brian how are you doing? I'd start off, Jeremiah, by saying one thing, and this isn't my quote. I have to attribute this to Tom Dutra. He always says, tough times don't last, tough people do. Hello, and welcome into another episode of Sounder at Heart podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kastner. I am joined today by Tim Boss and Jeremiah O'Shan, and we are going to talk about the new CBA agreement, which is the old CBA agreement with some extensions and whatnot that was agreed upon today. We are recording on Monday, February 8th. You are probably listening to this on a day into the future. So uh, Jeremiah, do you want to give us, give us the quick and dirty on what actually happened and why it happened? Yeah. So Without getting too deep into the weeds on the history of this, uh, the short version is uh, the players and the owners agreed to a collective bargaining agreement way back a year ago in February of 20. February 2020, the two sides agree on basically the uh, on a CBA. It's, it's pretty much drama-free. They get, they get it all agreed upon before the deadline is really approaching. Everyone's feeling good. Uh, They get to the second week of the season. We all know what happens. Season gets postponed before they can get back to playing. They, they had never actually signed the CBA. And so that was an opening for the owners to renegotiate the CBA. So back in June, they, they got together and they revised the CBA uh, and they inserted something called a force majeure which allowed them to cancel the CBA again if, uh, by, if there was an act of God. And essentially they used the ongoing pandemic as an excuse to exercise that force majeure. And they reopened negotiations again a couple months ago, brought us back to where we are now. And uh, they, they, signed, they, they finally came to an agreement on a new CBA uh, well, not on a new CBA, but on a revised CBA. And the short version, which I already said was I was going to do, and it's already long, but they've extended it for two years. So now instead of um, originally it was a CBA that took them to 2024, then last year they added a year, and then this year they added two more years. So we're, we've now got a CBA that's going to take us all the way through 2027. Uh, there's a bunch of other kind of details in there that we can in, get into later. But the the big story is that the players and the owners have agreed and we've got this CBA that theoretically is going to be in place for six more years. Which all sounds great. Yeah, but did we, I guess, <laughs> did we really have to be in this position in the first place or is it just the owners kind of turning the screws because uh, they want to make a little bit more money? Yeah. You know, that's a, that's, that's the big question. And I think, you could certainly argue, and I think there was a solid case to be made that there, it, because of the unforeseen nature of the pandemic, it made a lot of sense to revise the CBA last year. And the players had to give back something like 7.5% of their salaries, which is a fair amount of money for a lot of these players. I mean, I don't, no one wants to take a pay cut, and 7.5% isn't nothing. And they, you know, they made quite a few concessions last year. And I always, and, and so like the, I, I'm a little suspect that so much changed between June of last year and now to justify the level of revision that this thing got. And the original proposal supposedly that MLS made was going to save them like a hundred million dollars over the course of five years. And this is now going to save them something like 50 or $60 million over the course of six years. So I don't know. Um, that feels like an awful small amount of money for, you know, you, you figure it's like 
let's just call it $60 million over 60 years. That's $10 million a year for the whole league. Each team uh, is, you know, there's 30 teams in there. So you divide 30 by, uh, by 10 million, you're down to $3 million uh, basically, or no less than that. Um, You're down to like $300,000 per team per year. Like, that's not that much money when you really think of it that way. $300,000 per year per team. Uh, I don't know. It felt like a lot of headaches for, like, ultimately not that much money. That's unfortunate. But what is fortunate is that we are – we don't really have to talk about this anymore because there's a deal in place. Uh, Tim, how how worried were you about maybe – a lockout or a strike happening? Um, I admittedly like don't have a great legal mind. So I don't pay a ton of attention to various like CBA conversations. Um, Knowing that there was the possibility of a lockout was definitely something that concerned me. I think especially as time sort of creeped forward and all of a sudden you know it's may or not may it's february and there's not a clear resolution yet um and i think theoretically there was the possibility of you know training camp opening this month there still wasn't a cba um and given the general circumstances of the negotiations and seemingly unnecessarily the league sort of taking this weird stance for a renegotiation where as jeremiah said they didn't really get anything out of it they probably just pissed off their labor force for no good reason um it seemed like the league probably wasn't going to give a ton of concessions and think that was frustrating and stressful but it's for the time being resolved and we're gonna have soccer yeah i would say that the thing for me is that from a purely business standpoint i get it from the owner's perspective like they i think wanted like they're in an uncertain time they are losing money like a fair amount of money, like by their estimation, they had something like a billion dollars in less revenue last year. I don't think that they lost a billion dollars last year. Like that would be an outrageous thing, but they probably have something like a billion dollars less in expected revenues than they, than they were going to have. And you could spin that as a billion dollar loss, I suppose, but they they lost a bunch of money last year. They're probably going to lose a bunch of money this year. I get why, like from a business perspective, why do they want the security of taking the CBA all the way to 2027? Which the biggest thing about that is that in 2026, that's when the World Cup is supposed to be in the United States, Mexico, and Canada. That's you. It's not hard to imagine that being a boon for MLS. Um, the funny thing, of course, is that that's also the period of time when the owners would probably most want to invest in the league because take advantage of the attention that's going to be on this league. And in some ways they've, they've kind of tied their hands a little bit in that they aren't going to have as much money to, they've given themselves less money to spend during that period than they would have had if, you know, absent disagreement. So, I mean, it's, it it feels a little short sighted. Like you said, it's, it's, creating a lot of strife with the with their labor force i think on the other hand the players are looking at it like well i don't have to take a pay cut this year i don't have to take a pay cut next year the people that are going to be getting this money in 26 and 27 probably aren't me uh in fact these are the people that are coming to take my job that are going to have these that i'm that i'm essentially taking money from so i don't blame the players for being like having a little bit of a short sightedness on this and saying like, man, this is five years from now. What do I care what players, you know, if you're, if you're a 30 year old player, the last thing on your mind is what guys in 2026 are going to be doing for the most part. Um, You know, you got food to put on the table for your family. (laughs) So like, I don't really blame them. It just, it just feels like a lot of acrimony for relatively small amounts of gain. Yeah. I guess the other thing for me is that like fundamentally that, 
circumstances didn't change between the negotiation last year and this year. Like if anyone was really paying attention at the time, the pandemic wasn't going to be better within a year, especially with how the U S was handling it. Um, But the league consistently, you know, maybe like through willful ignorance consistently was very short-sighted in the way they approached and viewed the pandemic and just kind of kept approaching it as like, well, everything will be better in six months. Everything will be better in six months. Everything will be better in six months uh, with no significant change. And here they are. And I think, you know, it's hard to blame the players for, yeah, being maybe short-sighted, especially after just having negotiated a CBA a year ago. And as everyone else has lived through a pandemic in particularly weird circumstances as professional athletes, just as a weird situation. Yeah. And they were all made to live in Florida for like two months, three months of last year. Uh, I guess if you were there the longest, it was like over 60 days. Um, they, the Alliance council year end meeting had the guy uh, from MLS. I'm forgetting his name, but he talked about how he lived there for like 75 days or something like that, which he's a league employee. So maybe that's a little bit longer, but yeah, just like MLS, their entire approach to 2020 was, it, somebody else will figure out the difficult things and they're just I, I mean every sports league basically took the same approach the nba the nfl um and and so forth so on one like on one hand yeah I, i've been very critical of how the league has handled kind of the entire thing and this just puts a really bad taste in my mouth but i'm glad it's resolved uh jeremiah yeah, I, I think the, the one, if there are some positives to take from this, it's there is some security in all this. I think that I de- like, I guess they can theoretically invoke the force majeure again. Like that didn't go away. I can't imagine the league wanting to revisit this again, assuming we're heading in the right trajectory. Uh, but I guess it's not out of the question. But ideally, we now have a settlement in place that you know, we, we have until, you know, we have six or seven years, we have potentially the longest period of, of no negotiations uh, since the league signed its first CBA, which I don't know what year that was, but uh, it's, it's a pretty long, I mean, that would be a, it would be a long time that we won't have to go through this again. Uh, you know, by the end of the contract, uh, the minimum players are going to be making is almost a hundred thousand dollars. That's, that's got to be seen as a pretty big advancement. Uh, you know, the, the salary budget, for the each team by the end of this thing is going to be over $13 million. That's a, that's a fair amount of money. Uh, you know, especially when you consider that that's before DPs. Uh, and then there's also this new mechanism that uh, is going to be unveiled this year. We still don't have a lot of details, but uh, in addition to those three DPs, teams can now sign three U22 initiative players, which are effectively the broad strokes of that is teams can spend as much as they want on transfer fees for players that are under 22 years old, as long as they have a salary that's under something like $750,000. And that's, so essentially teams in theory can have essentially six DPs on their roster. I don't know how many teams are going to take full advantage of that. And I I suppose that there's going to be a real danger in overcommitting in that area because you could end up with, you know, if you sign three players that are 21 years old, all those players presumably would have to be DPs the next year. Now you've got a bit of a problem if you also have three DPs. But uh, these are these are new problems. These are uh, kind of exciting times. And and I, I'll say that the one thing that's a lot different than this from the youth DP rule is that unlike the youth DP rule, which is essentially choosing to sign a young player or a veteran player this is these are spots reserved completely for younger players so you don't have to make that choice anymore and and that should you know encourage teams to use it more often we haven't seen a ton of youth dps we've seen even fewer youth dps who have performed at the dp level but uh, this will be an interesting thing to see how the, how it does and it and uh, for a team like the sounders who are really up against the salary cap right now uh 
they theoretically, I think, have room to sign at least two of these players. I don't expect them to do that. Uh, certainly not immediately, but uh, I wouldn't be totally surprised if they brought in a player like that in the summer. It will be interesting because, um, you know, at least in the Sounders, uh, necessarily a team that has gone out and spent a ton of money on a young player and expected that player to perform like another team on the other side of the country has tried to do. Uh, Their success has been built around having a core of very good, solid veterans throughout their spine. And then their young players have come in through their academy or uh, through scouting, such as, you know, new who or Brad Smith. So it will be interesting to see how that works. I'm not necessarily like you sound pretty optimistic about that just as kind of a, a way for the league to approach roster construction. I'm not necessarily super, uh, I, it'll, it'll take, I, so I'm not a big fan of it because I think it'll have like a lot of, a lot of teams will have to change the way that they approach roster construction. And I don't see very many teams set up for, for that. I guess the question then is what do you see as the downside? Like, I, I don't, I don't think a lot of teams are ready to hit the ground running and sign three players like this, but I just don't necessarily see, the like these this is a a mechanism that was completely unavailable to teams before so it's yeah it's at the worst case teams don't use it and it and they don't get any better but the best case is that you theoretically have a bunch of young players who teams spent millions of dollars to bring in uh with some upside yeah i think like i i agree there there is upside and i suppose it's not uh the thing that I am scared of is, is resources are limited. No, like even if, even if it's not, even if this mechanism wasn't available yesterday to these teams, that money is still resource. Like it just doesn't show up out of nowhere. And if, if you have a team that their bread and butter has been scouting, you know, 25 to 28 year olds, that's a certain type of personality. That's a certain type of you, you have more career footage on a player. You have a better idea of what you're getting. And I think the downside is you are, it's the, it's the same downside that that teams in Europe have been experiencing for 20 plus years. You're buying young players as a commodity in hopes that they become uh, something else that they aren't currently and uh one that can ruin a player's career and two it it makes the team committed to uh committed to a rostered spot and a player that might not necessarily be a good fit yet i think you know it seems like there's probably two distinct camps in which teams that use this mechanism will fall. And one of them is, you know, the teams who are signing players in the hopes of being able to flip them and maybe spending $8 million on a transfer fee and salaries included. And then to like make up for that expenditure, they have to sell the player for like one and a half times that, or whatever the case may be. Um, then you have teams that, you know, we already know that the Sounders scout players for years before they sign them, knowing that, okay, in three years, we probably have a DP spot opening up. That player could fit in here. We'll sort of track that guy's progression. And when that spot opens up or is opening up soon, then we'll approach him to sign him. I think you could see teams like the Sounders creating a sort of using this as a transitional spot for those players that rather than depending on whatever Argentinian mid table team that guy plays for to, you know, develop him in the way that they want, they can splash a little bit of money in the immediate term, maybe use him as like a 
semi-rotational starter in the expectation that in two years or three years when he's aged out of that, he's ready to be a full DP when another DP graduates. Um, I think regardless, just as you did a week ago in MLS, you have to hit on your signings, especially big money signings. Teams that did a bad job of that in the past were unsuccessful. Teams that continue to be bad at that are going to continue to be unsuccessful. Yeah, I, will, I, think, I was going to say, I think one thing that's from a Sounders perspective that is encouraging about this is that you see a lot of teams around the league have kind of given up on their USL teams and for one reason or another. And I think this is a mechanism that really lends itself to the Sounders uh, using it well. Like it's a lot easier to justify going out and spending, call it 2 million bucks on a 19 year old and letting him play a whole season at the defiance when he's not taking up a DP spot when like you would never do that with a, with a, a youth DP, you wouldn't want to do it with a youth DP because you're wasting precious time. Like you're, every minute that he's not on your first team is wasted opportunity if he's a full DP. But with a, with these young players, you can sign an 18, 19, a 17-year-old. Uh, you can spend a bunch of money on them. And if you're playing them at the USL, you can justify that by them just being, them just developing. And even if they never get onto your first team, you're potentially enhancing their value uh, for a later sell-on. And so I would think that the Sounders if they wanted to, could be pretty success or could be pretty creative about how they use a rule like this. And, and I think you're right that it's not going to be a tectonic change. Uh, certainly not immediately around the league. I don't know that there's any teams that are particularly well positioned to go out and sign, you know, more, one, two, certainly not three of these players and have them be contributing to the first team. Uh, that, that seems pretty unlikely, but you know, I, I think for a team like the Sounders who actually take a longer term view of, of their developmental system and have mechanisms in place where they could have them training with the first team and playing games with, with their USL side, I think there's a lot of, a lot of potential there. Uh, again, I don't think the Sounders are going to go out and make this signing in the next couple months. I think that best case scenario, they're probably going to sign someone that fits this bill in the summer. But it at least gives them some flexibility. It creates, you know, I, I know that Adrian has been working on Adrian Hanauer has been kind of behind the scenes working on something like this for a while. And so my suspicion is that he's someone who has an idea of how he wants to use it. Uh, but we'll see. Yeah. I think, I think the Sounders are probably better equipped than most teams in MLS to handle a rule like this and actually do something successful with it. I, just feel on kind of like a, a a league kind of 10,000 foot view. They're trying to manufacture something that should be happening with their teams organically and just isn't like they want to be a selling league and they're a little bit further behind than where they want to be. So they're trying this, like they're trying to like game the system that I, I think might end up shooting them in the foot because you might have a situation where you do buy a 17 year old for two, $3 million dollars you think in two or three years, you're going to make $10 million off of them. But then they get to that point where they're about to hit that threshold and the team has to cut them loose for pennies on the dollar. Um, whereas I don't, it just kind of feels, you know, this thing is a day old. So, and we haven't seen a team do it yet, even with the existing rules in place. So um, maybe, maybe in two years somebody's going to find this clip of me talking about it and I'm going to look stupid, which is totally probably actually probably is going to happen. So um, <laughs> I think that's probably enough chatter on that. The uh, one more, I, will, I just oh, want to add ahead. one more thing on that is that this player that FC Cincinnati just signed, I can't remember his name, but this is an example of a player. Brennan, who, something? Brennan, yeah. So I don't think like that's the, not the kind of player that this is designed for. Supposedly they they're spending 13 million on the transfer fee and supposedly another million and a quarter or something like that on his salary. Um, if that's all true, I don't suspect that he would qualify. This is probably more likely a guy who's going to be under the traditional UTP standard. Um, and this is more for players who 
whose wages are not going to be that big to begin with. But to put into perspective how challenging it is, uh, the, a guy on Twitter that you hopefully follow named Toodle Ramen uh, kind of worked out the numbers and basically fi- figured out that they would have to get something like $26 million in transfer fee to just to like actually recoup their investment if they were to transfer this guy out. Um, that's going to be a tough, that's going to be a tough one to hit. And I don't want the Sounders to approach their roster construction like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want them to be FC, FC Cincinnati. Uh, no, I mean, guys like that but they I, need to be yeah. producing at the first team to justify the investment. Yeah. And like, I just, I just mean from a standpoint of like, I don't really care how much money the Sounders are going to make from selling a player because I want to keep watching them play an MLS cup, uh, which I think dovetails into the next conversation I would like to have with both of you pretty well. <laughs> they, uh, they had this young player for a while. His name was Jordan Morris. Uh, he played in four MLS cup finals and now he's in Europe uh, playing for uh, Swansea city. And uh He's on loan, of course, you know, because he's been there for a couple of weeks if you're listening to this. Uh, that leaves a pretty interesting um, dilemma for the Sounders. He is on loan until the summer, so they don't have any sort of transfer fee or anything from them, uh, you know, from uh, from Swansea City yet. He has a uh, – there's a clause in the loan that if, you know, they can buy him for – Jeremiah's reporting has said a significant amount of money, which uh, nobody really knows what that means, but it would certainly be the most money the Sounders have ever gotten from a transfer fee. Um, but in the meantime, that, that leaves the Sounders in a situation where they have to figure out how to play at a meaning at a high level, a high standard without an MVP quality, you know, best, best, 11 and MLS quality winger on their team. Uh, And Tim, you had some interesting ideas on how that could happen. And that includes a a different formation. Do you want to fill us in on what you've, you've been doing recently? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, inspired by the fact that, you know, both Brian Schmetzer and Garth Lagerway in interviews have discussed the idea that the team could play in a 3-5-2 formation um, and seemingly not just sort of throwing that out there as like an offhanded remark. It's come up multiple times and it's come up in how certain players could be utilized. Um, it seems to make a lot of sense. Jordan Morris being in a team especially in a team like the Sounders in a league like MLS changes the way that you're going to approach the game. He has absolutely game changing speed. Uh, He's a dangerous finisher. He can create opportunities himself. Um, You're naturally going to shift how you approach a game plan to take advantage of his skills He's not here for the foreseeable future. So the Sounders don't have a, you know, elite level speedy winger really on either side. Uh, They have a couple guys who could fill in there. They have some players who could potentially develop into really good wingers, but they're not stylistically similar to Jordan Morris. Um, So like that necessitates some changes. Ultimately, the sort of hallmark of how Brian Schmetzer builds his team and puts them on the field is to set them up in such a way that the best players are able to play to their strengths and he gets the best players onto the field by and large. I, we can all disagree reasonably on whether that includes certain players, uh, but it seems unlikely that they would go into a season where both wing positions are filled by question marks effectively, uh, where the team doesn't really know what they're going to get out of either a young product or a player who hasn't really played in that position either previously or recently. Um, 
I think some people may want to see them play Brad Smith as a midfielder, and that's generally just not worked super well. So my preference would be to see them play in a different shape. Um, a three-five-two seems like it would work really well. It is a formation that can be used to really control possession. That seems like a style that really effectively fits all of the current talent available, um, especially having heard multiple people within the front office talk about how scouting has been impacted by the pandemic and just the general financial constraints. They're probably not going to go out and sign two starting level wingers in the next couple months. So this significant change seems to make sense. I, I think that the change makes a lot of sense, especially if you look at it as a club in the bag, so to speak, of Brian Schmetzer. I don't know that I would expect Brian Schmetzer to roll this out as the primary formation from day one, but it does make a lot of sense as a formation that they use with some regularity. Like it's the, the Sunders have used, you know, a five or three man back line at various times over the last few years. I, I, I went back and looked, and I think they started with that formation only three or four times, but they've used it. Uh, you know, like the time you might remember most uh, notably was at RSL last year, uh, it was a game that they tied 2-2 where uh, Alex Roldan, I think, got his first start as a wing back, And he looked really good in that. Uh, but I, I think you, you look at who, their personnel, and it, and it just feels like it makes a lot more sense. They have three very good – or three M- starting MLS quality. You know, we can debate as to, you know, <clears throat> just how good Shane O'Neill is. But, you know, he was good enough to start all, all four playoff games last year. Uh, you know, they have three. So I think you can say they have three starting quality center backs. They have two starting quality forwards and Will Bruin and Raul Rui Diaz. They have three really, really good central midfielders in Roldan, Ladero, and Joao Paulo. And the, really the question is, what are they going to do on those wings? And I think if you use New Who or Brad Smith on as one wing back and Christian Roldan or maybe a Kellen Rowe as your other wing back, you know, I think those are pretty solid looking. That's a pretty solid looking group. Even if it's not your a one lineup, I I think that you can probably make the argument that it is like, that's your best. That's getting your best 11 on the field. I think. Yeah. I think so. A few weeks ago, uh, the episode we did before we had uh, Brian Spencer on as a guest, uh, we initially floated this idea and I was not necessarily like, I think I initially shot it down as uh, I wasn't a fan, but, you know, spending three weeks thinking about something, you can kind of convince yourself of some things. And um, I really like the idea of, so I think a thing that soccer fans do that doesn't, doesn't actually happen on the field is we get so in our minds about what a formation is and it like, it's not the like it's just not what actually happens on a field. The way that a four two three one is set up for the Sounders is going to be different than the four two three one that Orlando uses, or you know, so on and so forth. Just because the personnel is different, you know, uh, playing a cent- like, and, and we saw, we saw that with the Sounders last season when Gustav Svensson would play, he would play defensive midfielder different than the way Christian Roldan would play defensive midfielder, even though they're starting in the same spot in uh, on the lineup sheet. So I'm really excited to see kind of a tactical evolution of this team because it's, it's basically been the same thing for the last couple of seasons. And I think that the way that the roster is constructed currently as, as both of you have mentioned and the kind of, maybe the way forward because, because teams have more or less figured out the Sounders um, <laughs> no less in the last game that they played in MLS cup. Um, and I, yeah. And I think that this, we're, we're not taught, we're not necessarily suggesting that this is going to be how the Sounders line up forever for the rest of the time and 
and that's just the way it's going to be. But, but yeah, I think, especially, especially in games at home, um, when you're expected to have a lot more possession, as Tim points out, it, it makes a ton of sense for the Sounders to do that as well as it allows, uh, it allows certain players to get on the field that couldn't get on the field in a four, two, three, one, like you cannot, you can't play Will Bruin on the, I know his goal is then to be a center back someday, uh, maybe when he's older, uh, <laughs> but I don't, yeah. And, and it allows, it allows positions such as the uh, a wing back position, which is essentially a fullback and a midfielder at the same time. You have players like uh, Ethan Dobler who are new to the league, really young, who can have a set, you know, a set position and have defensive cover to figure out how to develop. I think the other thing, and I guess the other thing that's worth exploring is, you know, I think you can figure out how a how a three five two sets up. I think it's also probably worth thinking about it how a four two three one might look with the current group, assuming they don't bring in an obvious winger. And there is a formation I think that works there too. And in fact, my suspicion is that if they had to play a game tomorrow, that they'd probably set up in a four two three one, and we'd probably see Christian Roldan as the right midfielder. And maybe we'd see like Kellen Rowe as the left midfielder. Maybe we'd see Ethan Dobleary. Maybe we'd see, uh, I mean, I think those are probably, or maybe we'd see Shannon Hopio. Uh, and then I think we, it wouldn't be at all surprising to see a Jordy Dellum starting alongside Joe Paolo or even a Danny Leva starting alongside Joe Paolo. And I, I think you can put together a pretty confident, competent 4 2 3 1. It's just that I don't necessarily think that's your best personnel. Uh, I, I think right now Will Bruin is probably in your best 11 in terms of just like getting your top 11 players on. Uh, but it's, you know, I think a lot of it depends on how, what you think of Jordy Dellum and what you think of whoever's starting on that left as that left midfielder, uh, because it's not too hard to figure out the other parts there, but it will be, I, I think we're going to see a few different formations this year. I, I think the big change that we're both, that we're all kind of pointing towards is that we're probably not going to see a four-two-three-one is the default lineup every game, uh, where you could really just plug that in virtually every week for the last, you know, really five seasons under under Brian Schmetzer. And you know, there was only a handful of times that they haven't used that. And I suspect we'll see more. We'll see more variety in lineups this year than we've probably ever seen, and we might see like a four-four-two. Uh, like a four diamond. I don't know that the, like I've heard, I've seen a few people suggest a diamond lineup. I don't know that there's an obvious, you know, an obvious four midfielders. I guess it would maybe be, you know, you maybe use Jao Paulo and Christian Roldan as shuttlers and you, and you drop Jordy Dellum behind them. I suppose that that might work. Uh, But I, I think we'll see a few different looks this year. And I think that that's one thing that will be interesting to see how they handle it. One thing that I do sort of want to touch on is that even when the Sounders have played primarily in a 4-2-3-1, it's been really common and not just with the Sounders, but at every developmental level. Um, And it's often been really apparent with Tacoma Defiance, but when the Sounders are in possession, they often are effectively playing in a 3-5-2 where sometimes that means that the two center backs split wide, the fullbacks push up and Gustav Svensson or Joel Paolo drop into the middle between the two center backs to distribute the ball. Sometimes it means that, you know, the left back pushes way up and the center backs sort of shift to the left and Kelvin Leardam dropped back to be sort of a right center back in possession. Um, but that this isn't a complete departure from how they've played. I think if, they intend to focus more on possession, which I think would make sense given the personnel available, starting with possession as sort of like the default assumption makes sense, in which case adjusting personnel a little bit, especially when that happens to allow you to put more of your best players on the field at the same time, just seems like a very short line from A to B. One question I have for you, Tim, and I think you might be better situated to answer this is, 
it feels like the way the roster is constructed now and, and realizing that it's not a, like there's going to be some signings one way or the other. It, it might be guys at the tail end of the roster. Who knows? They might bring in a starter. But as it sits right now, it feels like, and, and you listen to what Garth has said, they want to create an environment where some of their, one, at least one of their young guys has an honest shot at winning a starting spot. And, you know, if you look at the, those top young players as Ethan Dobler, Alfonso Acampo-Chavez, uh, Danny Leva, and Josh Atencio, of those four, do any one of them look like they are on the verge of being starters? You know, I think it's tough because going into last season, I probably would have said Danny Leva. Um, I think – you know, that is sort of to a certain extent borne out by the fact that he started in the first MLS game of 2020. Um, Which people forget. I think people have conveniently forgotten that before like the pandemic, there was a willingness to use these guys. Like, I think a lot of people just kind of assumed Daniel Leva had lost his starting spot, but no, he just got hurt. Right. Well, and even in that game, I think people assumed that he must have played poorly because he got pulled at half time so that Jordan Morris could come in who then had a brace to win the game. Um, and, you know, some of that was the result of CCL games ahead of that. Uh, but he really was and injuries. Yeah. Nicole Sodero was injured. Um, but Danny Leva then got hurt and missed basically the entire remainder of the season. He was healthy at the end, but wasn't really getting into the team. Um, I think it is going to depend on how they approach preseason and the off season. Um, I think Danny Leva's path into the starting lineup with Joao Paulo and Christian Roldan ahead of him. Um, and similarly for Josh Atencio is a tough ask. Um, if they do tend towards a 4-2-3-1, I think seeing one of like Ethan Doubleair or Shandon Hopiao really take advantage of the opportunity is certainly within like the reasonable realm of possibility. Um, I think it really is going to depend on sort of what formation they tend towards. Um, I think I also, maybe not grabbing a starting spot, but I think Alfonso Campo-Chavez, if they do play a 3-5-2, could do really well as sort of one of the first options off the bench as one of those forwards. Um, he spent more of his time at Tacoma playing as a forward in 2020 than I probably would have expected. And the performances he put in there would be a really good fit alongside one of Will Bruin or Raul Rui Diaz, where his movement and vision just really seemed to have taken a significant step forward and he was handling the physicality really well. Um, I guess that is all to say. I have no idea. And all of them could be a great option. I like, I like the one that I think intrigues me the most is Josh Atencio because of this conversation about playing with three center backs because uh, he still teenager. So he's not big enough to play in a, you know, a back two, you know, a, a central defender pairing that you would need in a four, two, three, one. And I just like, I hadn't seen enough from his passing range to feel comfortable with him in the midfield, but when you combine those two things, both of those things kind of become a strength as, as a third center back, you know, probably on that, on that right hand, on the right side of the central uh, of those, of, of a back three, because he can step up into the midfield, you know, he's, he's okay on the ball. He's comfortable on the ball. So, uh, you know, like if Shane O'Neill has a run, a run of games where he plays poorly, which uh, he certainly happened with it within himself to do to do so uh, that could certainly happen and i still want new who to be a, cent a center back so i'm never gonna let that go <laughs> i i think to your point about josh atencio another 
sort of point in his favor is that similarly to when the Sounders played in a 4-2-3-1, they often morphed into other formations depending on whether they had possession or the state of the game. The same goes for if they play in a 3-5-2. It's not always going to look like a 3-5-2. It, there are probably going to be times where it looks like, you know, maybe a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3. And if you have a center back who can competently step into a defensive midfielder position and sort of orchestrate things from there, in addition to playing as part of a three back, that's certainly something that Josh Atencio seems capable of doing. Um, I think, again, it just is going to depend on, you know, certain matchups depending on the opponent and game states and all sorts of things. But yeah, I think he's got a good shout. The other developmental question, I kind of feel like you're in a good position to answer or better position than me is this is the situation with Trey Muse. He got loaned when they announced the signing of Spencer Ritchie, uh, which we haven't really talked about probably for good reason. He's, second or third goalkeeper. But the, the interesting knock-on effect is that is Trey Muse going to San Diego loyal. Uh, you know, the, the Sounders have essentially five goalkeepers in their organization right now, if you include Christian Herrera, who they signed to the defiance. And, and essentially it seems like they just decided that they can kind of like what Chris, what the Tacoma defense needs and what Trey Muse needs are not necessarily the same thing and they feel like Trey Muse is maybe going to be better off at a defense like you know at a better team frankly uh like San Diego Loyal and the Defiance defense will benefit by having a like a steadier goalkeeper behind them uh is that a does that feel like a fair way of putting this situation yeah I guess the thing I would say is that what the Defiance defense needs and what Trey Muse needs are the same thing. The problem is that what the Defiance defense needs and what Trey Muse can offer right now are not the same thing. And similarly, Fair. what he needs is not what the Defiance defense can really offer. Um, I think there's been some sort of misconceptions in the way that it's been discussed in suggesting that like Trey Muse is playing behind this really young defense and that's not helped him the issue is that the defiance defense has been bad uh not necessarily that they've been young they sure. have been young just not necessarily in relation to trey muse um, sure yeah that's fair it's with a few exceptions the guys playing in those spots have generally been like college age guys or draft picks who got moved there or Taylor Mueller, who they brought in last year, sort of in an effort to solidify the back line to offer some age and experience and maturity. Um, And I think that helped some, but having another goalkeeper back there who has more professional experience, who is going to be maybe a little bit, more comfortable bossing his back line and telling everybody what they need to be doing um, should be helpful for the rest of the team. For Trey Muse, I think it's been tough over the last, you know, we didn't really see him in 2020, but in 2019, there'd be games where he puts on an incredible performance. I think most people have seen highlights from I believe the game against New Mexico United where he had like a bonkers four save play where it went he, on a sports center top 10. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. Um, that. Where like legitimately each of the four saves is a good save in this ridiculous scramble. Um, but he would have games where like he comes up with all these huge saves and then they still give up like three goals or he has a run of games where he looks really good. And then he just gets pummeled because his defenders left him out to dry. And it's sort of hard to, you know, watch those games back to back and determine like, is he a good 
goalkeeper. He is good at some of the things. He's a good shot stopper. His distribution is okay. But is it just that his confidence is being shook by bad games that are a result of, you know, compounding problems? Or is he just an inconsistent player? With this move to San Diego, he's going to be able to play for an admittedly new coach, but a coach with lots of professional experience in Landon Donovan, who has plenty that he can offer to him, I'm sure. Never heard of him. He's a kind of balding guy. He's short. Um, He used to be good. Um, And seems like legitimately a stand-up guy with a number of things that happened over the last year, particularly particularly the way that he stood up for one of his players, Colin Martin, in uh, a experience with homophobia on the field. Um, But Trey Muse is also going to play for a team that is likely to compete for trophies, um, playing behind more experienced professionals um, in a steadier team. The Sounders are going to get a chance to see how he does in that environment. Um, And hopefully he comes through that and shows that he can be the number one choice on a good team at that level. And that gives them confidence to continue moving forward with the expectation that he can be sort of the heir to Stefan Fry's gloves. That's great. That is, that is something that Sounders fans should probably start thinking about because Stefan Fry is 35, um, which baffles my mind. Um, but who knows? Maybe he'll be like the goalkeeping Tom Brady and play until he's 45. So we don't have to think about that. But uh, I think that that's probably a good place to to uh, wrap up our conversation. And um, thanks to Tim and Jeremiah for coming onto the show. And I've been Mark. This is the Sound at Heart podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>